Thanks, guys. Uh, we have a statement at our church that uh, every Christian ought to sing, but not every Christian ought to sing into a microphone. And um, I'm glad that Matt's got the microphone, and uh, he's leading us in these wonderful songs that give expression to our soul's desire. Uh, when my father-in-law, who's now with the Lord Gordon Elliott, got saved, the word went out in his factory in Glasgow, Scotland, Gordon has become a hallelujah. I think that's a great description of a Christian. Gordon's become a hallelujah. You see, in Psalm 40, when God takes us and lifts us out of that horrible pit, He puts a new song in our mouths, even praise unto our God. And I don't know about you, but I'm enjoying our worship times and uh, finding uh, it, 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 uh, an opportunity of expression to my own heart. Uh, when I became a Christian, my father, who was a Baptist deacon for some 50 years in a little Baptist church outside Belfast, he took me aside and he gave me this piece of wisdom. He says, Philip, treasure your faith like a Presbyterian. Organize your faith like a Methodist. Share your faith like a Baptist, but enjoy your faith like a Pentecostal. <laughs> and I just think that's a good word of advice, and it's uh, stayed with me, and I hope you're enjoying your faith, and you're giving expression to it like a good old-fashioned Pentecostal. And um, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. I kind of laid out my stall this morning. Here we are at this uh, national conference focusing on the mandate, the Great Commission. We never want it to become the Great Omission. And the Great Commission is to disciple by going and teaching and baptizing. And for my four sessions, I want to look at the exponential growth and explosive impact of the New Testament church as we find it recorded in the book of Acts. As I said this morning, in a span of 30 years, they marched across the Roman Empire they turned the world upside down. They morphed beyond being a Jewish sect to being a worldwide phenomena. They went from Jerusalem to Rome, from the Jewish community to the Gentile world. They left an upper room with 120 praying souls. And by the time it's done, they're seeing some in Caesar's palace come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's challenging, giving the shrinking footprint of the church in the Western world and the United States. So we've got something to learn from them. And uh, I said we did a series in our church. This is part of it, Ready, Steady, Grow. And, and I looked across um, the book of Acts, and I saw several things that marked them. They were spirit-filled. They were loving and caring. They were bold in their witness they were um, led by effective leaders. They were marked by the preaching and exposition of God's Word. They were prayerful and dependent upon God. They were a community of holy people, and they were united. And that's the theme I want to pick up tonight. This morning we looked at the necessity of bold witness. Tonight we're looking at the necessity of cherished unity. Psalm 133 says what? High, pleasant, and good is it when brothers dwell together in unity, and it is there that God commands the blessing. 
And we see the blessing of God poured out on this church, and we want that blessing for ourselves, and cherishing unity is part of that. And if you're going to cherish unity, you've got to work through conflict. And that's where we're at here in Acts 6, verses 1 to 7. And you'll see when this conflict is resolved that it was a multiplier. Look at verse 1, a message I've called Stress Fractures. In those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer under the ministry of the Word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Permenus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. During my time at Placerita Baptist in Santa Clarita, I enjoyed a friendship with one of the professors from the Master's College at that time, now the Master's University. He was formerly a professor from Bob Jones University. His name was C.W. Smith. He was a godly man. He was beloved by the faculty and the students of the school. In fact, there's a dorm named in his name today. And through our friendship, he invited me to join him on an oncology committee at Henry Mayo Hospital in Valencia, which was just a wonderful way for me to kind of uh, work my way into the community. And as I got to know C.W. Smith, I knew, I realized he was a man of many talents. Not only was he a professor at the Master's College, now, for a time, he was a kind of church troubleshooter for the EV free church movement in California. And so on the weekends, he would come alongside either uh, churches with vacant pulpits or feeling churches and try and, uh, you know, um, help them uh, write a new future. It wasn't all uh, easy work, much of it was inglorious. And given the nature of the churches he was working with, which were often in a muddle and a mess, his son-in-law, Tom Pennington, told me one day that the family dubbed him the ecclesiastical pooper scooper. I love that. C.W. Smith was an ecclesiastical pooper scooper. In fact, he told me one day about a church he was working with in the Pasadena area, and he said, you know what, Philip, they're so divided, the only thing they have in common with each other is the car lot. That's a sad commentary, isn't it? But conflict among God's people is all too common. The work of God is too often damaged by self-inflicted wounds through division and disagreement among the saints. Church history has shown us 
that endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace is not easy. We're in the book of Ephesians, we de- we're in chapter 6, and when we covered chapter 4, we realized that unity exists. It's our job to keep it. We don't have to create it. We're united in Christ with a common faith and one Father over all, one hope, so on, so forth. We are united as believers in Jesus Christ. All those who are um, united to Jesus are united to everyone else, united to Jesus. There's unity there. But keeping it is hard work. It doesn't come easy. There's an endless array of issues that can produce conflict. In fact, I just kind of did a 33,000-foot flyover of the New Testament one day, and and I saw there's relational conflict in the New Testament. Philippians 4, 2 to 3, two ladies, Eutyche and Syntyche, who were not living in harmony, and so Paul writes to them and the leaders and encourages them to live in harmony, encourages the leaders to come alongside and help these women reconcile. There was spiritual conflict in Corinth. (laughs) Uh, You read that letter, it's pretty depressing. There was conflict over the celebration of the Lord's table, the exercise of spiritual gifts, participation in lawsuits, the dissolution of marriage. There was division among leadership. There were favorites. Paul has to say to them in chapter 3 of his first letter, I'd like to say you're spiritual, but you're not. You're fleshly. Relational conflict, spiritual conflict, doctrinal conflict. I mean, the pastoral epistles are a warning against apostasy. They're a call to guard the deposit. They're a reminder that the church will not always endure sound doctrine. Paul talks about those within the church who had said that the resurrection's past. Look at the letter to Galatians where Paul uses the word, I marvel, and that's the word that's used in the Gospels for people marveling at Jesus' miracles. To use a British term, Paul is gobsmacked at the thought that this church is already removing itself from the Gospel. Then there's philosophical conflict. That's Paul and Barnabas over whether to take John Mark on another missionary journey. And they had different philosophies. And you, you also see in the passage we're about to look at organizational conflict. Where um, some things fall through the crack or things aren't led as well as they should be and along the way people feel neglected or hurt. There's an endless array of issues of conflict in the New Testament. Keeping the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is not easy. It's hard. Conflict can arise. Um, I remember reading the story about a stretch of several hundred yards along a highway in Elmer County, Alabama, where you'll find three churches kind of um, separated from one another by a certain distance, and each of them tell a bitter story. If you go along that particular highway in Elmer City, Alabama, the first church you'll come to is a church called Harmony Baptist Church. 
but they didn't stay harmonious for long. There was a split, and so if you go on down the road, you'll find another church which was named, uh, um, let me see, New Harmony Baptist Church. A little further down the road, you'll find a third church because there was also conflict in the second church leading to a third church, and the third church is called Greater Harmony Baptist Church. That's a true story. These churches exist. How sad, how tragic. And so let's learn how to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And we'll, we'll be helped here by the story that Luke records for us in Acts 6, verses uh, one, 1 to 7. Here, here we meet another catalyst for church growth, cherished unity, the pursuing and the protection of unity among God's people. If you want to study this in your own time, if, if you go back to chapter 2 and verse 46, you'll read about the believers being united of one accord in worship. In chapter 4, verse 24, you'll read about them being of one accord in prayer. In Acts 15, 50, 25, you'll read about them being of uh, one spirit in, in decision-making. On, on several occasions, chapter 2, 4, and 5, you, you'll read about Luke talking about them being of, in one place of one accord. Um, the New Testament church was, was a, a united body of believers and, and um, that was a pleasant and a good thing, and because of that, God commanded His blessing. So, let, let's learn how to um, protect this cherished unity so that we might enjoy God's blessing in our assemblies. Now, let's put the text in its context. The context is one of sustained attack from Satan against the early and expanding church. I like what Adrian Rogers once said, what you find God blessing, you find the devil blasting. It's just the way it is. And there's a three-prong attack. In chapter 4, it's physical persecution, bodily harm. In chapter 5, it's corruption from within. It's a lack of integrity. It's two sins lying to the church leadership. And they're called out. They're pretending to be something they're not. And then in chapter 6, it's distraction, the, the temptation to draw the leadership away from what they can only do into something that others can do so that they can concentrate on, on what they alone are effective in doing. Chapter 4, it's the world. In chapter 5, it's the devil. And in chapter 6, it's the flesh. And by the way, given this sustained attack by Satan, the last one, this distraction where the, the, the apostles are being tempted away from prayer and the Word, that one's cleverest because it's subtle. It's not immediately obvious that it's wicked. Now, there's uh, three things I want us to see. The growth of the disciples... The, the grievance of the widows and the guidance of the apostles. Try to move through this at, at, a, at a good clip. Let's look at the growth of the disciples, not spend a lot of time, but you'll see at the beginning of chapter 6, verse 1, we have another of Dr. Luke's progress reports. 
He's the first church historian, and he's given us a mile marker in terms of the church's growth. Verse 1, now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying. Gives us another report on the other side of this conflict resolution. Verse 7, then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied. From the day of Pentecost, it would seem as if the early church had been shot from a gun. The infant church never crawled. They simply got up, walked, and ran forward. And you'll see, by the way, we have moved from addition to multiplication, right? Back in chapter 2, verse 47, we read, And the Lord added to the church daily those who ought to be saved. But now we're seeing the Lord multiply the disciples. We marvel at this spontaneous spiritual combustion, and it's a challenge to us. The primitive church was forward-leaning. And there's two things I want you to see briefly, the measuring of this growth and the means of this growth. It is a simple point, but not to be missed, that Dr. Luke was not embarrassed to count numbers. Chapter 2, verse 41, he tells us 3,000 souls got saved on the day of Pentecost. In chapter 4, verse 4, he tells us about 5,000 men that got saved. And now in chapter 6, verse 1, he's telling us that the numbers are growing exponentially. They're multiplying. Counting numbers is not a bad thing. It gives you a measure of where you are compared to where you've been and where you are compared to where you might want to be. There's a whole book in the Bible that counts numbers. It's called Numbers. <laughs> and I'll tell you why I think Luke counted numbers, because people count. Souls count. Measuring impact is important. They count to God, before God, and, and they, they, should, they should count uh, to us, and, and, and for the person being counted, it gives them a sense of being valued. I don't mean this to discourage any brother who's in a small church or who's struggling because there are seasons to ministry, but I'm just going to quote Spurgeon. He said, those who don't count numbers usually have no numbers to count. And I just want to be challenged by that. Um, I think it's good to measure numbers and see where the ministry is at. Is it regressing? Is it progressing? Counting numbers puts a value on people. You know, I'll be in Israel, as I said, later this year, and I can tell you we have a daily routine uh, when we leave the hotel in the morning, and when we leave a site later in the day, we count all the heads. We go up the middle of the bus, and we count one, two, three, four. We know exactly what number's on the bus. We want people sitting there, and people aren't offended because they realize they're valued. And, in, and so we see the, the measuring of this, this growth. Number two, we see the means of this growth. This is a particular type of growth. Not to be missed. In fact, we'll be picking this up uh, tomorrow night. It was gospel-centered growth brought about by the pure, persistent, passionate, powerful preaching of the Word of God. 
Look at verse 30, uh, uh, 42 of chapter 5 leading up to chapter 6. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease to teach and preach Jesus. What a, brought about the multiplication of disciples? It was the dissemination of the Word. It was the multiplication of proclamation that brought about the multiplication of saints. And you'll know that they, this is not watered-down sermons. There's no gift bags. There's no gimmicks. Gimmicks will build you a crowd. Only the gospel will build you a church. They didn't market the church. They didn't tickle ears. They didn't offer people their best life now. They didn't preach the felt needs. They didn't hide the cross. They didn't bury hell beneath a truckload of platitudes. No, they preached the gospel. They preached Christ up, and they preached man down, and God blessed it. This is rudimentary, but let, let, let back to basics is a good thing. Just listen to these verses from, from um, different letters in the New Testament, and, and you'll realize that the word preached and received is the catalyst for church growth. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12. That, we who, that you uh, who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Um, similar report in, in 1 Thessalonians 1. How the gospel Im, uh, impacted that city, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word. So we'll get into that tomorrow night. As I thought about this little thought, I, um, a quote came to my mind that I found on my phone. I'm getting it here. Listen to Martin Luther's description of the Protestant Reformation. Take me, for example, I opposed indulgences and all papists, but never by force. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's Word, otherwise I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, I know, I'm sorry to say that, with all my, with my friend Philip of Amsdorf, the Word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did so much damage to it. I did nothing. The Word did it all. And that's what you see here. They preached and taught the, the, the kingdom and, and Jesus, and, and, and all of a sudden people are getting saved. Move on. The grievance of the widows. The grievance of the widows. In the midst of this explosive expansion, the church suffers some growing pains. Success creates its own set of problems. Have you ever noticed that? People on progress will bring problems. Anything that moves creates friction. Churches that don't move don't create friction. One writer actually said this. I think this is helpful. Growth creates change. Change causes complexity. Complexity brings about chaos. Chaos causes concern, and concern causes conflict. I think all of that's going on here. Uh, if you want peace and quiet, go to a cemetery. 
It's easy to keep order in a graveyard, but when the church is alive to the presence and power of the Holy Spirit and people are getting saved, it can get a little messy. Now, there's three things about this grievance I want to notice. The timing of the grievance. As God multiplies the church, the devil sets out to divide the church. Notice that phrase, verse 1, now in those days. How interesting is that? This is a time of blessing. They had momentum. The church was still basking in the afterglow of Pentecost. The church was united. Love reigned among the fellowship of the saints. We see that back in chapter 4 and and, uh, verse 32. Now, the multitude of those who believe were of one heart and one soul, and neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, and they had all things in common. These were good times. Let the good times roll. That's what's going on in Acts chapter 6. It was a time of victory, and yet it was a time of vulnerability. Because times of victory are also times of vulnerability. Have you ever noticed how close sometimes high moments and low moments are? You know anything about the topography of California? You know that the highest point in California and the lowest point in California are quite close together, Mount Whitney and the Death Valley. And if you study the Word of God, it's the same with God's servants. It was after Samson single-handedly slew a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, he laid his head on the lap of Delilah. When David was at the zenith of his political power, In political glory, he fell in love with another man's wife. Immediately following his baptism, after hearing the voice of God from heaven, Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And of course, Peter, intoxicated with the wine of his confession of Christ, became vulnerable to Satan's attack and immediately became his instrument. Amazing, isn't it? Speaking in the House of Commons, 1913, on the subject of naval defense, Winston Churchill said to the British Parliament, quote, we must always be ready to meet at our average moment anything, any possibility the enemy might hurl against us at his elected moment. Bear that in mind as you see the timing of the grievance. Number two, notice the tracing of the grievance. The tracing of the grievance. The issue at the center of this grievance centered on the daily distribution of food. It would seem that there were funds that had been set aside initially unintelligently, administered by the twelve apostles to help suffering saints or disadvantaged saints or perhaps those traveling from city to city, and we're certainly, uh, some of that's going on here in Jerusalem in the aftermath and the afterglow of Pentecost. You see that in Acts 4 verse 35 and Acts 5 verse 2, and we see again in Acts 6, 2 to 4 that the apostles seem to administer some kind of fund for the need of widows and orphans and those who are disadvantaged. Maybe something akin to our benevolent fund. Now, it seems that a dispute arose between the Hebrews and the Hellenists because the Hellenist widows were getting a smaller slice of the cake, or that's what it seems to be, right? There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution 
Let me just um, paint in the, the background regarding Hebrews and Hellenists. What's the difference? More than likely, Hebrews were native Jewish believers who populated Palestine. Hellenists were Jews from the diaspora who had come to Jerusalem for the feasts. And Hellenists had absorbed aspects of Greek culture and language and custom and were a little suspect to Palestinian Jews. And so their widows were being neglected. Hellenists believed their widows were not receiving an adequate share of the food. And yet, it would seem from the text, by the way, that the neglect was accidental, not purposeful. There's nothing in the text that would hint at foul play, bias, or cultural elitism. And maybe the Hellenists suspected that, but there's nothing in the text that would justify that. The church was growing at such a pace. By this stage, we could have 20,000, given the 3,000, the 5,000, and the multiplication. And so there was overload. And so the widows were being overlooked. And so it was a question of logistics. This was an organizational failure. The church, yes, is an organism, but it's also an organization. And and no doubt there was a problem here. In many ways, it's just a numbers thing. Um, One writer said this, "In, in conversation of three people, you have six possible lines of communication. You to me, me to you, you to them. And I multiply that. In a church of 50 people, there are 2,450 links, lines of communication, which is, is also uh, avenues for misunderstanding, misinterpretation. In a church of 100 people, 9,900 links. In a church of 200 people, 39,800 links. If you go up to a church of 1,000, you've almost got a million links different aspects of communication, going in different directions. I think that's what's going on here. The church is an organism, but it's also an organization. I think that's worth, uh, you know, understanding. Um, We we need to remember, and this text will teach us before we're done, that that the value of a well and rightly ordered church for the spread of the gospel. God loves God things to be done in what? Decency and order. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40. In fact, one of the gifts that God gives to His church is the gift of administration, which is a word that's used for the pilot of a ship in Acts 27, verse 11. If you read the pastoral epistles, church offices are talked about, church order is talked about, church organization is talked about. Paul dispatches Titus to Crete to set in order the things that are lacking. The word set in order means to fix a dislocated bone. From this passage and other passages, we see God blesses order, cooperation, stress fractures in the early church warns against being super spiritual and impractical. Effective ministry for God requires preparation, planning, procedures. 
a clear understanding of the role of a deacon and the role of an elder, perhaps in a church that can uh, afford it, perhaps someone given to administration full-time, so that needs are being met. The church is being well run. I remember a few years ago, C.J. Mahaney, speaking at the Shepherds Conference, told of an evangelistic encounter he had at a Starbucks where he was studying, and he engaged this man in the gospel, and the man said, I'm sorry, I'm not interested in organized religion. To which C.J. Mahaney said, you should come to our church, we're not that organized. <laughs> now, now, that was a little tongue-in-cheek because it was a very well-organized church. I love the humor, but let's not mock organization because the church is an organism, but it's also an organization. And we're, we see here when it's not well organized, trouble can ensue. Thirdly, quickly, the telling of the grievance, I think this is interesting. The Hellenists, because brought a, a, a complaint against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected. When it it comes to speech, there is what we must say, right? And then there is how we say what we must say, and that's different. The reality is we often say the right thing the wrong way, and we create conflict, and we raise the temperature. And, and, And you know what? If we're going to ding the Hellenists, their, their, their widows looked like they were being neglected because that does get addressed. And that problem is solved. So there was a real problem, but they communicated the real problem in a very unhealthy way. They, they raised the issue, and then they raised the temperature in raising the issue, which isn't good. Because um, this word complain has a very bad history. It's used of the Israelites murmuring in the wilderness. It means the mutter. It means the grumble. It's in a family of words associated with the buzzing of bees when they flap their wings madly when they're mad. And, and, and that's what they were doing. They weren't just raising the issue. They were murmuring. They were complaining. They were raising the issue and raising the temperature all at the same time. And that's forbidden, by the way. Do all things without murmuring and grumbling. Philippians 2, 14 to 15. It is a, a soft answer that turns away wrath. Complaining is no way to address a problem. Yes, address the problem. Face the issue. But complaining is no way to address a problem Sometimes the way some people share a problem is the first problem. Murmuring, fussing, grumbling doesn't help the problem. It exasperates and exaggerates the problem. Unfiltered complaining simply complicates the complication. So the point is very simple, but it's a good one. How we talk about a problem goes a long way to solving it and settling it. I heard about a man who walked into a New England seafood restaurant. He asked the waitress if they served crabs. She snarly replied, we sure do. Sit down. (laughs) Don't be crabby. 
Don't be a problem on top of the problem because you've allowed the problem to get on top of you. Share it, but share it in a measured Christian manner. So let's get to the guidance of the apostles in the time that remains. So we've had the growth of the disciples that produces the grievance of the widows, which is a real problem, but it's being handled in a bad way. And it's an issue of organization and good order. So that produces the guidance of the apostles. And by the way, the guidance of the apostles will bring about another spurt of growth of disciples. Because look at verse 7, then the word of the Lord spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied. When the apostles handled this problem well, it brought about good results. They took charge, they worked out a solution, and they implemented a plan. I've got four thoughts here quickly. They envisioned the process, they engaged the problem, they established the priority, and they empowered the people. Let's look at the first thought. They envisioned the process. That is the process of sorting out the problem. They no doubt looked to God. These are godly men. They no doubt lent on the Holy Spirit because they're filled by the Spirit. But I want you to see in our text, the focus is on the use of the brain. They reasoned. They thought. They applied gray matter to the situation. Back to verse 2. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, notice these words, it is not desirable. You might have a translation, it's not reasonable that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. Serving tables is not right for us. Serving tables doesn't make any sense for us because God's called us to prayer and the preaching of the Word. I want you to notice when we come to this chapter and this issue and the so- solution that's set before us, there's no divine revelation like Acts 5. Because God does something supernatural in revealing that they're aligned to the Holy Spirit, Ananias and Sapphira. By the way, there's no prayer meeting as there is in Acts 4. Just cool headed, clear headed thinking. I just find that fascinating. Not that we shouldn't pray about everything. Not that we shouldn't ask God to intervene and show us things that we're missing. But just cool-headed, clear-headed thinking. But, but by the way, isn't that what leaders are meant to do? What's one of the qualifications of a leader? First Timothy 3, verse 2. Sober. That certainly means he doesn't abuse alcohol. But it really, it means he's unclouded in his thinking. He's unclouded in his thinking. His thinking's not altered by alcohol or anything else. He's a clear-headed man. He's a good thinker. You get that also in the second letter of Timothy, verse four, chapter 4, verse 5, the old King James, be watchful. Fulfill your ministry. Do the work of evangelists. I love the NIV. Keep your head in all situations. What a great translation. That's what leaders do. They keep their head in all situations. But everybody else is emotional and losing it and communicating in a way that's raising an issue on the temperature. The leader keeps his head clear. A leader is someone with a magnet in his heart and a compass in his head. 
Alan Redpath said, you find 90% of God's will from your neck up. What does he mean? If God gave you a brain, then you'll find 90% of God's will with it. May your ministry be marked by grace and gumption. Bottom line, when it comes to keeping unity, when it comes to troubleshooting, look for reasonable solutions. That's what's coming out of the text. Look for what is best, what is wisest, analyze, weigh your options, look for a win-win, be pragmatic where that is reasonable, be thoughtful, don't make the problem bigger through rushing to judgment, through shallow thinking, through simplistic answers. Be tender, yes, but be thorough, be thoughtful. Good management protects the mission of the church. When, asked, when answering the question, what is leadership, Max Dupree, one of America's most successful Christian businessmen, said this, quote, the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. Love that. That's the job of a leader. When problems come, and when spots take place, when conflict arises, when pressure points, fractures, stress fractures appear in, in, in the makeup of the church, it is the leader who looks at all of that with a clear head, with, with sensible, sanctified thought, and he defines the reality, what needs to be done. He's not driven by the moment. He's not swallowed up by the emotion of others. He stares clear-headed, keeps his head in all situations. Let me give you a little example of this. Uh, um, um, some years ago, uh, I invited a, a new friend of mine um, to preach in our church. He was an SBC evangelist, and, and he came to our church. And, and I didn't do him a, a, a good service and, and help him really understand who he was preaching to and the kind of theological culture he was in, which was pretty Reformed and Calvinistic. And he was preaching. I was lying uh, on some beach in Hawaii with my wife, and my phone started blowing up. Because at the end of the service, he did a full-blown come to Jesus, walk the aisle, can I see your hand? And our place doesn't like that at all. And all the young Calvinists were writing to me, Pastor, I can't believe you brought this guy. What were you thinking? And, and it went on. And, and you know, and I, I wrote back, guys, I think you believe in the sovereignty of God. Calm down. Just kind of turned it on them a little bit. And, and so I got back, and in the staff meeting that week, one of the pastors was pretty ticked off about it. He says, Pastor, I think we need to give an apology to the church next Sunday morning for what took place last Sunday morning. And I said, no, we're not. I said, that wasn't his fault. If it was anybody's fault, it was my fault for not warning him of what we do and what we don't do. He was being himself. I'm not going to ding him for that. And God's sovereign, isn't he? And God can use an altar call if he wants to, and even if he doesn't need it, he'll use it. <laughs> I said, I'm not doing that. And then I said this, by the way. I said, I just read a book, guys, on leadership by Bob Russell, who has a large church in Kentucky. And it just happened that days before this happened, I'd read an article in that book where he said, good leaders decide whether a thing is a case of the measles or is it a cancer. Because if it's the measles, they'll get over it in a couple of weeks. If it's a cancer, you've got to deal with it big time. 
And I just looked at the staff, and especially the guy that wanted me to get up and make an apology. I said, brother, this is a case of the measles. I'll get into the pulpit the next two Sundays and people forget about it. It's the measles. It's not cancer. I defined reality in a way that avoided embarrassment. And then sure enough, two weeks into, you know, whatever I was preaching, people forgot about it. Maybe except for a few hard-nosed Calvinists, but I can't do anything about that. (laughs) Number two, they engaged the problem. They not only envisioned the process with clear, reasonable, thought-out responses, they engaged the problem. What I love about these men is that they took the tiger by the tail. They didn't run from the controversy. They didn't run from the conflict. They ran towards it. Do you notice that? Then the twelve summoned the multitude. Hey, okay, we've got a problem. Let's sit down and sort it out. We've done some thinking. This isn't, you know, we know what's reasonable and what's not reasonable. But we want to, you know, engage the problem. And so they said, hey, seek out from among you seven men, a good reputation, fellow the Spirit, so on, so forth. We'll come back to that. They had a reasonable solution as they engaged the problem. And here's the thing that strikes me. There was no wishful thinking. There was no burying their head in the sand waiting for the storm to pass. Because nine times out of ten, it doesn't get any smaller. It just gets bigger. They didn't think it unspiritual to admit there was a problem. And the other thing they didn't do was they didn't spiritualize the problem. Now, there's kind of three responses, isn't there? I'm not going to develop them, but when it comes to problems, conflicts, relational pressure, you can ignore it, deplore it, or explore it. Many people like to ignore it, wishing it away. But when you go to bed and wake up, it's still there. And then they, some people like to deplore it. They get angry over it and frustrated over it. And they, they add fuel to the fire and the fire spreads. Leaders can become angry when faced with conflict. Or you can explore it, face it. Find out what the issue is and what are, what are the reasonable solutions. Problems only get bigger if we ignore them. Denial is not a solution. We only get smaller if we deplore the problem. It's hard to make peace when you're angry as a leader. They only get solved when they're faced and dealt with. There's an old story about a monastery high on a cliff, and the only way up was a basket pulled by a rope. And as the man climbed into the basket, he saw the rope was frayed, and so he paused and asked, as anyone would ask, how often do you replace the rope? To which the monk replied, every time it breaks. (laughs) Well, no joke. That's a bit late, isn't it? Don't let a problem become an emergency, which leads to a tragedy. Thirdly, they empowered the people. They empowered the people. While the apostles took the leadership, because that's what leaders do. They don't delegate, they lead. They don't hide, they lead. While the apostles took leadership, 
They looked for a broad-based solution. I find that fascinating. They were smart. They enlisted the people. That's what verses 2 through 6 are all about. Okay, we've done some thinking. Here's our best thought here. It's not smart that we administer this fund anymore or we address this issue directly ourselves. We, we've got to focus on the Word. We're not going to serve tables. So here's what we suggest. Why don't, why don't you seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and, and verse 4, and we'll give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And, and the whole multitude said, that sounds like a plan. That's what good leaders do. They lead people to understand the problem. They, they, they outline the solution, and, and, and when it's outlined well, it makes sense to people, and they buy in. They got buy-in. Well, they took the lead. They did not get so far in front of the people that they were mistaken for the enemy. And so, number one, they showed that they listened and were willing to go the second mile in addressing the issue by choosing from among the congregation seven men. And did you notice Seven Greek names. They went out of their way to address the concerns of the Hellenists. They put seven Greek men full of the Holy Spirit who would identify who would be identified by the Hellenist community as from among them. And that certainly, you know, dumped the fires down answered the question, met met the complaint. This move affirmed the dignity and capacity of the body and was warmly received by the congregation. They empowered the people. Um, It's been well said, the people won't care what you know until they know that you care. And I love the fact that the apostles go out of their way to show that they cared, They went the second mile to get the people's buy-in. They really thought this thing through. So number one, they involved the people. But here's another point on this point. They empowered the right people. That's important. Seven good men were desired. And seven good men were chosen with good reputations, wise, full of the Holy Spirit, men with integrity and filling and intelligence. It was not the first seven men they could get their hands on. It's not the first seven men that volunteered. Leadership is not for everyone. And given the delicate nature of the situation, they needed high-quality help. This was a big task. Empowering people closest to the problem usually provides the best solution. Things never get fixed when we have the wrong people in charge. It just compounds the problem. Things never get fixed when it's a top-down approach only. They, they, they not only called a play, they called a player. Um, I was watching an ESPN interview with Nick Saban. It's very interesting. At age 15, Saban was his high school, school starting quarterback and essentially the offensive play caller. And during a particular game, a pivotal game, one that his team would need to win to make it to the state championship, their team was trailing six with 
few moments to go. The co coach pulled them aside to help them with the play call. Saban's coach, according to Saban in this interview, reminded him that he had two of the best offensive players in the state. He had a tailback and, and he had a split end. And, and Saban stops in the telling of this story and he says this, that at that moment I learned something enormously valuable. When you get into a critical situation in a game, don't think of plays, think of players. Don't just call a play, call a player. And so he goes on actually to make a play with one of those, you know, young men who were <clears throat> the best offensive players in, in the state. And, and I, I wrote that down as soon as I heard that. Because the apostles not just, they didn't just call a play, they called a player. They put the right people in the situation to solve the problem. Finally, they established the priority. This is the fourth thought. They established the priority. Listen, the apostles were very careful not to create a second problem. What do I mean by that? Well, the second problem would have been if they had just decided, you know what? We're servants of Jesus Christ. We've got a loving heart. We've got a serving attitude. We'll serve the tables. And you know what? Most churches would have appreciated that and maybe even demanded it of their pastor. But it wasn't a solution. It actually would have been a second problem because you'd have been drawing God's servants of the Word away from the Word to serve and minister tables. Not that that's beneath anybody, given we're followers of the one who washed people's feet. But these were gifted men, and God gifts the church with gifted men for particular passions and for particular paths. And so it wouldn't have been smart for them to leave the Word and serve tables. They needed to establish the primacy of preaching and prayer for them They wanted to feed souls, not stomachs. They understood that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So, yes, we've got to get bread to the table to the Hellenist widows. But we're not going to do it. Because God's called us to feed the soul. This wasn't a question of class, but calling. It wasn't that they could not serve tables. It was that they should not serve tables. Just because you can't do something doesn't mean you should do that thing. I, I wish churches would wake up to that and let men run in their lane and let preachers and pastors lead the church and not get drawn down into the minutia that others can deal with. In fact, um, Opportunity is not obligation. Need is not calling. These men were called to the Word. And so they had others. Perhaps, as Baptist history and theology argues, perhaps we've got here the prototype deacon that gets formalized in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 15. In my early days at Kindred, I was putting on a lot of fires. One of the elders took me aside and he said this, you're spending too much time in the work and not a time, 
enough time on the work. Get home. It was a good word. Because I was getting drawn into all kinds of things and I was coming into the pulpit tired. Lacking in preparation. Feeling that the one thing that generates the most impact in the life of the church. And I love the fact that I had godly men around me who saw that calling in my life. Hey, brother, you're spending too much time in the work, not enough time on the work. Get home, pray, rest, think through what we need to be doing next and come and preach the word to us on Sunday and move us forward. Paul Powell, a Southern Baptist, said, while the prophet Jonah was swallowed by a wheel, today's modern prophet is nibbled to death by a thousand minnows of interruption. So as we close, the apostles were not belittling the ministry of serving tables. In fact, they used the same word. Ministry, service for the preaching of the word and the serving of tables. It's all ministry. It's all glorious and to the glory of God. You see that in verse 2? He talks about the ministry of tables and then he talks about the service of the word in verse 4. It was a matter of gifting, calling, focus. It was the proper delegation of labor. It's people on the right seats on the ministry bus. The proper ordering of spiritual gifts is a huge factor in conflict resolution, proper order within the church, and the protection of church unity. Um, I hope that you and I pick that up and, 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 and uh, you know, under, understand that ministry drift and mission drift can happen. Let me finish with this. Just this call to leaders to focus on that which God has called you to. That's how God will use you best when the church is facing stress fractures and, and points of pressure. Um, September 2019, June and I were, my wife, we were flying back through London to Los Angeles. We'd been in Italy with uh, Baptist Midmissions uh, missionary um, uh, there and um, Fred Whitman. We'd spent three or four days with him ministering and enjoying some downtime in Rome, and Fred was a wonderful interpreter of Italian culture and, and Christian history. And, and, and um, as we were flying back through London, we were picking up a United flight out of London back into Los Angeles. I usually fly British Airways or American. I'm a one-world traveler kind of deal. But somehow I ended up on a United flight, and I got an email from a new member of our church who it turned out was a United pilot. And he texted me and said, hey, Pastor, I heard you're flying United back through London. What's your flight? So I gave him the flight number. And then I got a text from him saying, hey, I'm going to fly you home. And he had bumped a pilot friend of his off the seat, and he was flying us out of London with, uh, on a Dreamliner. It was, it was wonderful for several reasons. He was the captain. We got a lot of attention. We, we were treated right, like rock stars by the crew because the captain told them about that. And, and when, when we got to the gate, the, the person tore up our 22C and 22D seats and gave us 1A and 1B. It was pretty nice. And, and, and so, so we get onto the airplane, and, and uh, Kurt invites us up to the flight deck. Amazing. I love aircraft. I, worked, I was an aircraft engineer before I became a pastor as well as being a police officer. And this is the 
787. This is the latest Boeing. It's fantastic. And June and I got to sit in the seats, got our pictures taken. And, and just looking at that flight deck was, was mesmerizing. And, and, and I, I said to him, you know, how, how do you keep your eye on all of these computers and, and, and all the screens that are giving you intel and feedback? Well, he said, Pastor, I want to show you a cool feature. And he pulled down this just purse back screen, and he said, this is what's called the HUD. This is the latest technology. You get a little bit of it if you've got a sports car and it's, you know, throwing up your speedometer up under the windscreen. Well, that's this a thousand times more. And, and what they do, the HUD is the, the heads-up display, and they declutter the flight deck. Because there's only certain things pilots need to fixate on. Speed, altitude, pitch, roll, horizon, and the HUD gives them that. And, and you know, I've often thought about that in ministry, the speed of ministry, the ups and downs of ministry. Um, every pastor needs a heads-up display, a HUD, where he keeps in front of him the things he must do to be a faithful servant of God and best serve the church. And that's what's going on here. It's the final factor. They, the, the apostles decluttered their lives. We're constantly decluttering their lives, fighting the temptation to get drawn in here and put a fire out there so that they might give themselves to the word and prayer. They, 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 they protected the priority of the church while also dealing with the problems of the church. I, I, I find this passage so practical, so helpful. I hope it is that for you tonight, and, and that you remember this is another growth factor. Conflict stunts a church, but well handled can be a, a factor of growth. And, and, and therefore, you and I need to cherish unity, and we need to work hard at keeping the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And I hope that Acts 6, verses 1 to 7, gives you a game plan for that. Father, we know that it is to you, and certainly in our experience, a pleasant thing when brethren dwell together in unity. We know that Jesus died to make us one. And just as He is one with the Father, and we are one through Him. He has sent us into the world as the Father had sent Him into the world. And we pray that our, our um, display of His love and our communication of His gospel might, might be uh, one of, of cherished unity. And that the world might see in us um, a, a, a people deeply in love with one another, bonded forever in Jesus Christ, not reflecting the fractures and the fissures that mark life in the world. So Lord, help us to be of one mind as one man striving for the furtherance of the gospel. And when we face those stress fractures, we thank you for the model of Acts 6. We have a game plan here to deal with those problems creatively and constructively in a manner that doesn't impede the church but propels it forward. 
And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.